you have your Bibles, it'll be in Matthew chapter 26 today. We're going to be finishing up the chapter uh, in a message called Identified, Tried, and Denied. We're rhyming today. Uh, before I um, got engaged to Jill, I had never entered a jewelry store in my entire life. The exception of maybe the shortcut in Fred Meyer to get to the electronics section a little bit faster, but otherwise not ever stopping. Um, the jeweler, uh, as, as Jill and I we were getting more serious, we started checking out some rings in Anchorage, and as I walk into the store, jeweler starts looking at me like, I can get some money out of this sucker. And as he showed me his exquisite diamond collection, I showed him my exquisite savings account. And we compared notes and see what we could figure out. And, and he said, the jeweler said that actually you can best see uh, the beauty of a diamond. It's best displayed on a dark backdrop that you can more easily see its sparkle. Wonderful. I said, yes, dazzle me, you swindling man. And I demand sparkle on my fiance's finger. Or I will sparkle right out of here. Right? That's what I told him. And uh, just, just like the beauty of a diamond is more clearly seen on a backdrop, the, the beauty of, and brilliance of, of Jesus shines all the more clearly in our story when it is contrasted with the dark hearts of those around him. In our story, what are we finding the end of Jesus' earthly life, we see his closest friends betray him, abandon him, deny him. We see the leaders of his nation that should be protecting him. They're the ones that are falsely accusing him and ridiculing him, unfairly condemning him. And we see this contrast of their hearts with the faithful, submissive, submissive patient love of the truth-teller Jesus. But the point of today's story is not just to see how terrible those people were and what they were doing to Jesus, but to also turn in and see, see ourselves as part of that black backdrop. That we would see, we would have eyes to see that we are part of the problem, that we are no better than they are. And it's only then when we see ourselves as part of the backdrop that we will begin to see and savor Jesus as the, the beautiful Savior that he is, and be drawn toward him. Now, we ask, Father, that you would show our hearts this morning, so that we, uh, show us our own hearts, so that we might see the beauty of Jesus, that you would whitewash our hearts to become more like him, trusting and obeying your heart. Amen. I'm going to look at three contrasts this morning in Matthew. We're going to be finishing up Matthew 26. And um, I, was, I was really going with the rhyming today, and I almost hit a dead end, but don't worry, we figured it out. So Jesus was identified by Judas. He was tried by Caiaphas. And then I was like, oh, but he was denied by Peter. But then I remembered, he had another name. He was denied by... Cephas, come on, we did it, yeah, amen, amen, I don't know what we're talking about, all right, so number one, identified, we're going to see a contrast with the forceful taking of men and the submissive giving of Jesus, verse 47, it says, while he was speaking, what's the context, they're in the garden, this is Jesus speaking, he's been praying to the Father we saw last week, and his, as he's praying, his disciples are racked out, um, and then here comes Judas, just as he predicted, we see Judas came, uh, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders, 
affairs of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up, laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. From the Jewish leaders, they do not believe Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. They hate him, and they're looking for a way to kill him. And so they hired Judas, one of his closest friends, uh, to lead them to Jesus in a time that would be late and quiet and far away from the hubbub of the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. And so Judas here, we know the famous kiss of Judas uh, that betrays his Lord. Um, Now, it was a customary greeting at the time. Aren't you glad that's not in our culture today? Like when you guys walked in this morning, I wasn't like, good morning. Welcome to church. You're like, oh, we're going to College Heights. That's right um, so why did Judas uh, need to kiss him to identify him, though? Right? Like, you wouldn't, think, wouldn't they know? Like, they get to the garden, and it's like, oh, okay, there's Jesus. Thanks. We got it from here. Why does he need to do the theatrics of coming up? And here he is, guys. Why did he have to kiss him? Well, a couple things. First of all, it's dark, right? And so it's, it's, it's the middle of the night. And they have torches, you know, torchlight, uh, not going to be able to light up Jesus' face. And we often forget, they're not living in a world of photographs and video. Right? This was a time where even some of the better known celebrities like Jesus wouldn't necessarily have ever even been seen by the Jewish leaders, right? They couldn't just Facebook stalk Jesus like I did with Jill when we first met. And any of you singles out there, I recommend to try it. Um, but so he, he needs to identify who Jesus is. And so when he does this, what happens? They attempt to seize him. But behold, one of, verse 51, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. One of the disciples hacks off one of the the high priest servant's ears, and if you read in the account of John, it, he's identified as Peter, which really shouldn't come as much of a shock to us if we've read the story. This is very much on brand for Peter to be hacking off this guy's uh, ear, right? Now, you picture the scene for a moment. In verse 47, it says, a great crowd with swords and clubs. This is not just a few guys. As we piece together the picture from the four Gospels, we see that this is most likely three to six hundred of Rome's best trained soldiers. That this is also the temple police that would have been joining with the, the leaders and the personal security for the priests. So the, the Mount of Olives would have been literally covered with this huge army. And here comes Peter, not afraid. Now I was thinking for Lord of the Rings fans, it's like Gimli at Helm's Deep. When you have thousands, actually tens of thousands of orcs, and where's Gimli? Well, here he is right here. You can't see, you can only see the top of his helmet. And he's not afraid. You remember the, the quote he says in the movie? He, he says, uh, let me find it in my notes here. He says, certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? Right? Gimli's not afraid, and he goes charging into thousands and thousands of orcs. And here we see Peter on this mountainside with the Jewish Navy seals all around him, and he just starts hacking at people's faces. Like, Peter is not afraid, and, and he moves in. And we have a picture here of men trying to take things by effort, by their own force, by their own muscle. Oh, there's, there's Gimli attacking. There we go. The leaders of, of, of Israel are mustering this large army to seize Jesus violently. And we see Peter respond in like kind with violence of his own. 
But how does Jesus respond? How, how does Jesus' diamond shine against the violent, forceful taking in this backdrop? Well, verse 52, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And in fact, in Luke's account, we actually see Jesus healing the man's ear. Jesus is not here to take life, but to give his own life. He is not here to destroy. He's here to heal and restore. He says, but don't get me wrong. I could. I could if I wanted to. Verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So a legion in the Roman army was 6,000 soldiers. So some quick math would tell us that Jesus is saying, I could summon 12 legions. That's 72,000 angels at the snap of my finger. So your little human being army of a couple hundred is impressive and all, but yeah, I've got backup. And I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of what mankind can do to me as God. And what Jesus, the point Jesus is making here, this is not mankind taking his life. This is him willingly giving it up. John 10, 18 says, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. And what authority does he adhere to? For this is what my Father has commanded. Jesus' upside-down kingdom will not be taken by force. It will be freely given in submission He's giving his life. No one's taking it. And this word submission, it means to accept or yield to the authority of another person. So Jesus submits his life to the authority of whom? Well, what did we see in the garden last week? He prayed to his father, not what I will, but what you will. I want what you want. He submits himself to the father's will according to the father's word. And we see that coming out in the next few verses. Look at verse 54. But... But I could summon these angels. I could wipe you all out. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I just checked with my father. This is the way it has to go down. Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. I was there in broad daylight if you wanted to take me. But you didn't take me then. Why? Well, because you were cowardly and wanted to avoid a riot, but also because, verse 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is all going according to the Father's plan. One of Matthew's central purposes is to show us that Jesus is the promised king that was coming. And to prove that over and over again, he's showing how God's word, his promises in the Old Testament are all being fulfilled in Jesus. He's saying here that every single thing that's happening is according to the sovereign plan and will of God. And even when it looks like evil's winning, when he's surrounded by these men, he wants to show that no, 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 scripture is being fulfilled. God's word is being done. That God is in control. Amen. timing and manner of my arrest, he's saying, the exact moment of my death, my betrayal, my very closest friends denying me and deserting me. I told you this was all going to happen. Remember what he told the disciples, how they were all going to run? The end of this, this part of the story, verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. 
He just, pre- he just predicted this at the Last Supper, right? When the shepherd is struck, these little sheep are all going to hightail it out of there. And Jesus' beauty is contrasted again with man's back, the dark backdrop that they are violently taking things into their own hands, taking life, where Jesus is willingly placing his life, where they forcefully take, he willingly submits his hands into his father's life, into his father's hands. But we said earlier, we have to see ourselves as part of the backdrop, right? 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 So we have to ask ourselves, how do we take matters into our own hands? How are we like the, the people in this story? How do you use violence? How do you use force to get your own way? And maybe you are. Maybe it is physical abuse or, or some, some form of abuse that, that you have imposed on somebody and that needs to be addressed. But then also we see here maybe in more subtle ways, like Judas's kiss, maybe on the outside it looks kind. You know, maybe we know how to play the good game. But really, man, we're, we're still doing things, we're still trying to force our own way through manipulation, through flattery, deceiving people. But we still got our own agenda. It's subtle force, but it's force nonetheless. I know for me, it's my tongue. Man, the way I try to bully people around subtly and with a smile, right? What would it look like for me to, like Jesus, live knowing that my Father is in complete control of the situation? Like even on our hardest days, in, in, the, in the darkest nights, as Jesus is facing here, that he is being faithful to his plan for you. And we say, Father, I yield myself to none but your authority. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is tried. We're going to contrast self-serving lies with God's revealed truth. So anybody here been guilty of forming a preconceived judgments about somebody or something, and then you, thanks Blair, that you've turned out that you were dead wrong, right? Dead wrong. Yeah, okay, good, he's still with me. Uh, that we, and we do this all the time, right? We make these judgments before ever. Jill and I, uh, we were introduced to each other from afar, so we got to know each other online. And we both had to deal with some stereotypes of each other's states. So I heard she was from California, so I had in my mind what she might be like, right? A surfer girl, a valley girl, like, totally, right? And like I thought maybe she was like Jimmy Fallon's, ew, right? I thought, luck, praise the Lord, she did not look anything like that, right? But here I'm going, okay, I know what I'm getting into, and maybe from California she's going to skew liberal, right? Like a little out there, but turns, Jill's way more conservative than I am. Like, I'm like, here's a rare example of a pastor corrupting somebody else, that poor child, right? (laughs) I had her way wrong. I had her way wrong. And then here she's thinking, oh, Justin's an Alaskan. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, he's going to be this manly man. (laughs) Respect your leaders. He's going to be driving a big truck. He's going to be a hunter, fisherman, can like do, turns, like Jill is better at using a hammer and nail than I am, right? Like, she, she like, like we're Facebooking, who, I'm like, I like to read, <laughs> like, okay, all right, got it. But having said that, she was kind of right, right? I'm, 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 I'm a pretty tough guy. You guys will walk out, watch out. We had preconceived judgments of each other that were blown away when we revealed the truth about who we really were to one another. And look at, this is, this is what's happening here in, in the, um, the Jewish high courts. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. 
And Peter was following him in a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And, and we'll get back to Peter in a moment. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. See, the Jewish leaders had already made up their minds who Jesus was. They, they had ignored all the fulfilled prophecy that was happening. They were not hearing his words. They were not truly seeing his actions. They're not looking for impartial judgment. They're not truly seeking what's, what's who Jesus really is. They're just looking for a source. It says they're even looking for false witnesses. doesn't matter how reliable of a source it is. Just somebody who will back up their predetermined judgments with some evidence. This is not... This is is the definition of injustice, right? This is not blind justice that's looking for the truth. They're following their own agendas. I think, man, I I think during this pandemic, we have, we we all are, we're looking for articles that conveniently agree with what we already believe about masks and, and, and the virus and our political stances. Are we truly seeking the truth or do we already have a decision made in our heads and we're just looking for something that'll back up what we already believe? Now, Jesus is sitting here before the Sanhedrin, is is who this would have been. This is basically the the Jewish Supreme Court, is is who he's before here. And these are 70 uh, leaders plus Caiaphas, who is the the high priest at the time. Now, under Roman rule, the the, the Sanhedrin doesn't actually have any authority to kill somebody, which is what they want to happen to Jesus, right? So what they need to do is they need to find a charge that they can bring to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of that area at the time, and we'll talk about him next week. And then, so therefore, the charge needs to be more than just a, a religious reason. They need to find a political reason that would catch the ear of Pilate and, and the Romans. And so these two come forward, it says in verse 61, and that's important because in, in Jewish law, you have to have two people to be witnesses. And, and here's what they say. Uh, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. This man wants to destroy our temple. Now, they're taking Jesus' words, they're twisting them, and they're taking them out of context. If you go back to John chapter 2, he does say uh, in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. But when you look at the context, Jesus says, I'm not taking an axe to the temple. What's he referring to? Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's saying that you're going to destroy me in, in his crucifixion, and then three days later, I'll be resurrected. The, the true temple where we meet with God. Where they take his words and they go, now we got something that might get the attention of the Romans. And in verse 63, here's, our, here's kind of our culminating moment of the trial. Jesus remained silent, just like Isaiah 53 said he would. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So the high priest, he thinks he's in control. He's sitting on the judge's seat. And he believes he's got Jesus into a corner. But again, God has planned this moment out all along. And we're about to hear the great confession from Jesus' own lips as to who he is. But Caiaphas, he's just imposed a legally binding oath. When we go into the courtroom and you put your hand in the Bible and you say, I, I, t- I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He has to respond here. Has to give an answer. Now, if he denies that he's the Messiah, he can go free. He can walk away from all of this. Well, he's already determined in the garden what my father wills. I will not deny myself. I will not disobey my father. But if he says, yes, I am the Messiah, because of their preconceived notions that he's not, his fate will be sealed. So what does he say? Well, verse, 50, or verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. 
The same thing he said to Judas. He's turning his words back on and saying, this is what you said. But then he says, but I tell you from now on, you're going to see me in a different way. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, I am who you're saying who I am. But I need to clarify because it's not exactly who you are thinking of. They have in their minds Jesus as a political Messiah who is here to rally the Jews against Rome. But he's got something different in mind, a different vision. In fact, it's the vision of Daniel chapter 7, the throne room of God. It's so amazing. We, we need to take a look at this. In Daniel 7, he has this dream, this vision. And it, we're in the throne room of God. It says, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one sat down to judge. So this is God himself, the true judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. And a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. And who's there? Millions of angels ministered to him. The ones that he could have called if he'd have needed to. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session and the books were opened. The true judgment is about to go down. And what he says next, here comes this one who looks like the son of man. It looks like a man. But we're going to very soon find out this is somebody that's so much more than just another human. In verse 13, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. And this is Jesus' favorite expression for himself, the son of man, because he's calling back to this prediction about who he'd be in Daniel 7. Coming with the clouds of heaven. You hear the language that he just used. He's riffing from Daniel 7. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. So here comes this son of man into the courtroom. You don't just waltz into the throne room of God. You don't just come into his holy presence without an invitation. But here comes one who's worthy to enter into God's presence. And who is this son of man? Verse 14, he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The true king has come. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah, but I am so much more than your little political agenda. I am the God king who will reign forever. And he says, you want to put me in your pocket? Me and my 72,000, my millions of angels? We're not scared. You're sitting on the judge's seat, but I'm actually your judge and the judge of all people for all time. It's a Messiah mic drop. And Caiaphas goes, okay, that'll condemn. That'll condemn. Verse, 50, or verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy, this claim to be a deity when you're not, which it would be a lie, right? And it would be utterly dangerous if Jesus was not telling the truth. But of course he is. And so how do the Sanhedrin respond to this claim? Verse 66. What is your judgment, Caiaphas asks. And they answer, the rest of the priests and elders, he deserves death. And they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Can you imagine the self-restraint that it would take as these men lie about him, 
They mock him. They torture him. And again, here is Jesus. He could blink and he knocks them all down dead. The very breath that they are using to mock him is the breath that he put into their lungs in the first place. But Jesus shows this stunning submission to his father's will. And what they say here is that they mock him, right? Yeah, you can, you can prophesy who fulfilled Daniel 7 and who the son of man is, but you don't even know who hit you. And what's so, it's just dripping with irony here because their very mockery of him being unable to prophesy is fulfilling prophecy. And Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I offered voluntarily, you don't take me, I give it. I've offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I do not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Our God is in control. Hallelujah, what a savior. And again, we examine our part of the backdrop against Jesus' shining brilliance and his beauty, and we ask ourselves, you know, what, what preconceived judgments or verdicts have we made about who our God is, what we believe about him and our reality, how we think about other people? Man, we're so good. Idolatry is not just worshiping something other than God. It's worshiping a perverted, warped image of God. It's a God that instead of, instead of him being God, I create a version of God that, that actually kind of follows me around. A God that, uh, that I can stick into my pocket. I can finish my agenda. It's like, here, here's how I want uh, my life to go. And could you just put some Jesus sprinkles on top of it to make it go well? So who is Jesus to us? Is he a genie that grants our wishes? Or is he the Jesus that is revealed to us in the Bible from cover to cover? Not a genie, but an untamed lion that C.S. Lewis says he is good, but he is not safe. You cannot put our Jesus into a box. And this Jesus is going to come back someday on this cloud, and every hand will be placed over the mouth, and we will have nothing to say but worship to the God King of the universe, the true judge. He will try us. We will not try him. The last thing we see here is, is denial. We're going to see Peter's fearful rejection contrasted with Jesus' faithful promise keeping. It's been said, while Jesus was on trial inside the house, Peter's on trial outside the house. We'll see how it goes down. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he was out in the entrance, another really strong guy, no, and another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you, are two, one of, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Now, Peter's from Galilee, and they saw this as, as backwoods. Like, you're out there in the sticks, right? Used to make Nikiski jokes. Too many of you here now. I love you. Let's keep going. Because I can hear the twang, right? The Galilean accent. I don't know what y'all mean. I don't know him, right? Hey, even when Jesus, Peter's words try to claim one thing, he says, just even the way you're speaking contradicts you. 
And then in verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So we see contrasted here, Jesus' courage and truthfulness in striking contrast to Peter's cowardice and his deceptive lies. And Matthew is trying to contrast for us here that Jesus is speaking truth to the most powerful men in Israel. He's not afraid. He trusts his father. Whereas Peter is telling lies to the powerless, to a servant girl in the courtyard. And this swearing, he says, I invoke this curse on myself. This isn't four-letter words. Peter's not being beeped out here. What he's talking about is making an oath. May God strike me dead if I'm telling a lie. You hear that? And what did Jesus tell him? Man, let your yes be yes. You don't need to take an oath. Peter's using strong language to cover up what's not even true in the first place. I swear that I don't know him. Just like when he told Jesus, remember when he heard that he was going to, it was predicted that he was going to deny Jesus in the first place. What did he say? I will never, they all will, but I never will fall away. And once again, we see Peter overestimating his own strength, his own resolve, thinking too highly of himself. And we know that pride comes before the fall. And what he should have done has been following the example of his Savior, who is on his face in the garden, praying, Father, protect me. Don't lead me into temptation. I want to do what you want. But instead, Peter brashly steps into the courtyard. And he's afraid, right? I mean, it makes sense. He sees what's happening to Jesus. And, and, if, and if I claim to be with him, same thing's going to happen to me. And in an attempt to protect himself, he lies. And once again, we examine the backdrop of our own hearts against the beauty of Jesus. And we, you say, man, well, wait a minute. I've never denied Jesus. Like, nobody's ever asked, do you know Jesus? And I, and I answered, no. But we have to consider, have you ever avoided talking about Jesus? Maybe it's coming up in a circle at work or a different environment where it's not as cool to talk about him. And you don't want to be reserved, like, uh, called out as, as a religious fanatic or a Jesus freak. And so we just kind of conveniently hold our tongue. Now, of course, there's a time and a place. Don't hear me wrong. But there are also times when the Holy Spirit convicts us clearly to speak the truth to someone, to declare the gospel that we're sinners that need a Savior, that the name of Jesus is to be worshipped, and we hold our tongue when we should be proclaiming his name out of self-protection and fear. And we're no better than Peter. Or maybe even more subtly, right? Any, any fear-based, self-serving motive or action, and it falls in line with the heart of what Peter's doing here. Anytime we lie, I'm just going to fudge on that timesheet just a little bit, right? Self-interest, I'm just going to, you know, just make a little bit under the table. Uncle Sam's been taxing us too much. We justify our behavior, right? Nobody's going to know. It's just the wants. But when we do those things, man, we're no better than Peter, denying the way of our Savior. But our story ends this morning with very subtly but profoundly good news. Look at this moment, this, the pit of despair. He's weeping bitterly. It says in verse 75, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now here's why this is good news. Jesus already knew that Peter would deny him. In fact, Jesus already told Peter that he would deny him. 
And this is because Jesus is God. And what we hear of in Psalm 139 about our wonderful, marvelous God is even before a word was on Peter's tongue, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And whether it's praise of Jesus or denial of Jesus, he knew we were going to say it. And I don't know about you, but I have said some dumb things. I have said some wicked, evil things. I have torn people down. I have wounded people. I have spoke arrogantly. Things that do not on their own merit warrant forgiveness and acceptance by my Father. But, just like with Peter, and the Lord knew those words were going to come out of my mouth before I even spoke them. Before I was even born. And the beautiful truth is that Jesus chose to die for Peter even though he knew he was going to deny him in this moment. He chose to die for you and me even though he knew all of the times that we would be unfaithful to him, he stayed faithful to us. All the times that we're going to deny him, he'll never deny you. And interestingly, this is the last time that Matthew mentions Peter. But this is not the end of the story of Peter's life with Jesus. See, Jesus accepts us, not because we don't deny him, but because he's the only faithful promise keeper. And what do we see with Jesus? He meets up with Peter on the other side of the tomb. He forgives a repentant Peter and restores them to relationship. He sends him back out and says, go feed my sheep. See, Peter fails. Oh, does Peter fail. And Matthew, none of the gospel writers cover that up. Over and over again, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Right, Peter acts brashly. Peter fails, but we also see that Peter follows. He continues to follow Jesus. In recovery, we, the language we use is falling forward. But it's not about how many times we've failed, you guys. It's about each time that we fail, that we fall forward onto Jesus in repentance and toward restoration. The Father is there to welcome the prodigal home every single time. This is good news for people like Peter. It's good news for people like you and I. Maybe you're a fearful denier. Maybe you are a, a selfish taker, a violent taker. But when the Son of Man one day, and it could be very soon, he returns on the clouds as the king to judge. There are many that he will ban from his kingdom. But there's also a bride that he's waiting to welcome home. And who will that bride be? It will be those who acknowledged that the blackness was not just around them, but it was in them. But in the midst of the blackness, the shining, brilliant diamond of Jesus came into our mess, died for our sins, rose to give us a new life. And when we fail, we continue to fall and cling to the cross. We find life, we find restoration, and we find salvation. Amen. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the depth of your love that you would send your only son to make these wretches, to make these deniers, us as accusers, us as fearful self-protectors, as the proud, those that cut each other down with our tongues. You came for us, knowing we would do all those things, knowing that when you came, your own would not receive you, but kill you. And yet that was all part of your sovereign plan. That as we slay you, in that very act, you save us. What a beautiful gospel. It's not about how good we are. We are part of the black backdrop. But in contrast, we see the beauty and brilliance of Jesus stand out. 
Father, may we be a people that cling to Jesus, that we're going to fail. We're going to deny you. We're going to abandon you. We're going to falsely accuse. And yet, Lord, as we fall forward onto the mercy of God in the person of Jesus, we find restoration and forgiveness and the ability to go forward and continue to feed your sheep. Father, we thank you for Christ's finished work. We pray these things in his beautiful, brilliant, loving name. Amen.